Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Men, are you looking for a long-lasting, pain-free solution for erectile dysfunction or ED? Peak performance is that solution. Here's a list of our side effects. That's it. Peak Performance offers focused linear compression therapy, a revolutionary ED solution scientifically proven to increase blood flow, sensitivity, and sexual performance, all with no side effects, no surgery, and no pills. Call 1-800-210-8181 today for a free evaluation. That's 1-800-210-8181. This is a different perspective with Kevin Randall. Kevin is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel who has studied UFOs for more than 50 years. His military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and UFO research. Kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here's the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. Before I introduce my guest, Robert Schaefer, I'm going to take a couple of moments here to talk about a, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, when Robert was on the program not all that long ago, and I normally don't have a guest back quite this often, but other things have intervened and, and it's necessary for Robert and me to talk, I had um, talked to him about the Leveland UFO case, and I promised him we wouldn't talk about it this time. But there are some, some things that I wanted to uh, mention that, that related to things that he'd said. He'd mentioned that four of the witnesses had been discredited. And I hadn't heard that before. I asked him where he got the information. He provided me with a link to a website, and I went to it and saw that, yes, that was true, that somebody had said that these witnesses were discredited. Those being Frank Williams, Jose Alvarez, Ronald Martin, and James Long. Uh, looking into this in depth, and, and there's an um, article up on my blog, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, that, that relates to this. I, I was looking first for Frank Williams, and according to the information I could find, the sheriff in Hockley County, which is where Level Land is um, situated, um, where Clem had tried to get in touch with Williams after he'd made his initial report in the days before the Air Force showed up to investigate, and he couldn't find Williams. 
Williams was allegedly from Kermit, Texas, which is not that far from Leveland, but it's in a different county. And Claire, uh, Clem talked to his uh, counterpart in that county, and neither of them could find Williams. I don't know if that bodes well for the Williams testimony. It could be that Williams called from Kermit because that's where he was when he had the sighting and he lived somewhere else. Or he um, gave him a fake name because he didn't get, want to get involved in a UFO sighting but thought the information should be reported. Or he made up the tale completely, although I don't know what the motivation would be because when he made his phone call, this information hadn't been out on the media and there would be no reason for him to make that call unless, of course, he was involved in some other kind of conspiracy. The others aren't quite as bad as Williams, uh, Alvarez, Martin, and Long. I think Martin lived in actually Waco, Texas, so they made no real effort to get in touch with him. James Long is quoted uh, extensively in a number of newspaper articles that suggest reporters had talked to him, as well as the sheriff. So we have these four witnesses, and they're by no means the only witnesses involved. They're part of the thir witnesses at 13 separate locations that I've been able to identify that talked about this. But um, I just thought I would mention that, that, that uh, the information that Robert had given me led to this, led me to the website. The guy who uh, hosted the website uh, said that he hadn't reviewed the information in a long time, and I sent him what I had on that, so I don't know if he updated it or not. But I thought it was important to address that again, that we often, as we look at UFO cases, as we study the UFO sightings, that the skeptics can be very helpful in the investigations because they look into it as well. They may come at it from a different perspective, and I use that term advisedly, a different perspective than the rest of us do, but uh, the information is often useful to us. So I thought I would make mention of that before we got started. Uh, what inspired this is, uh, I, I think Robert had sent me an email with a link to a radio broadcast done by Richard Dolan and Kathleen Martin. Kathleen Martin was on the program uh, last year in Roswell. And uh, they had spent an hour attacking the character of Philip Class. And listening to the program, I thought it was quite unfair given who Kathleen Martin is and who her um, mentor was, uh, her cohort was, uh, Stan Friedman. I thought it was necessary to kind of clear some of that up. So let me get to Robert now. Um, and as I said before, he is a writer with a lifelong interest in astronomy and questions of life on other planets. And don't we all have those questions? And aren't we all interested in astronomy? He is one of the leading... <laughs> well, it just seems so, doesn't it? It seems <laughs> it should be, even if they're not. But yeah. well, there you yeah, go. it's out there. Astronomy is out there. What can we say? Uh, well, boy, you uh, got a lot of info there, and uh, it's uh, good to start things off with a bang. Um, yes, uh, yes, uh, Stan Friedman, Kathleen Martin, and all—they're—they're they're claiming Richard Dolan and Martin are claiming a number of things about Phil Glass. That um, well, 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 Robert, he, let me let me interrupt here because I want to make one clear, thing clear. You and I agree that Philip Glass could be very nasty at times. Oh, absolutely, and he was nasty to me a few times. He was nasty to a lot of people, but uh, on the other hand, uh, sometimes he did really good work. And, and I would agree with that as well, and I think that a lot of the people in the UFO community have said repeatedly that Phil Class required them 
to do in-depth research. They couldn't get away with the kind of surface investigations that gone on before Philip Clash showed up on the scene because they knew they had to deal with Clash and they had to have all the facts before they had to deal with him. Right. Uh, he kind of squeezed me in a number of times, and I objected to uh, an analysis that he did. I said, I, I thought I didn't think it was this. I thought it was that. He wanted me to lay out exactly and make a diagram of exactly what I was saying and exactly what he was saying. And, so, and uh, you know, it, 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 in some cases, you really can't say for sure. But, I mean, he was really interested in trying to get to the bottom of things. Now, it's true that sometimes, you know, he would get on an idea that would be a little hard to get him off it, that... Um, this business about the, um, he started out with, you know, thinking that UFOs were plasma um, you know, arising from, you know, high voltage wires and things like this, the plasma hypothesis. And while well, there seemed to be some evidence to support that, but on the whole, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. And you can't demonstrate that such plasmas, you know, can exist and persist in the air for more than a tiny fraction of a second, uh, if even that. Uh, but he and uh, for example, he was convinced that the Lucci photos, you know, the, the classic photos from Pennsylvania in 1965, I think, of the ones on the cover of uh, Incident at Exeter, the you know, the photo, or is it the? Uh, I think that's the one that's on that, or was it the other one, the, the Betty Hill book? I don't remember, but it, you know, it's on the it's on the cover there. Everybody has seen. Looks like. Uh, you know, big glowing uh, round thing, but without, you know, oval thing, without much detail. He was convinced that this was a real plasma UFO, and then I did some um, experiments with cameras and uh, replications uh, following the suggestion from the Condon Report of uh, uh, that this was basically, you know, like a hand, like a plate on somebody's hand, uh, and I suggested a way to do it. I changed that a little bit, found a, a better match, and showed it to Phil. And he, he changed his mind on it. He agreed with me that this was a photo hoax, not a plasma UFO. And years later, uh, one of the brothers did confess that, oh, yeah, we, we faked that. So yeah, I, I think that's uh, important. That's important. That's important to point out that, that the, the skeptic said it was faked. It was faked this way. And later on, they discovered because of the, the the brothers saying yes that's how we did it so yeah well i'm not sure if that's the reason i think uh, somebody from qfos went back and interviewed one of the brothers james or one of the others alucci and uh, and he admitted oh yeah we faked it but it looks like it looks like a a, a plate being held over a flashlight and there's really not much yeah, lot, yeah exactly exactly yeah, you just shine a light on it, but you keep the hand in the shadow, so the hand is not illuminated. You can see the dark shadow of the hand on there, but uh, not the, uh, you know, you can't, but there's no detail in it. But I think the point here is, so what, what, what inspired this conversation that we're sort of leading into here is Dolan and Martin spent an hour on his radio program kind of trashing Philip Class. And saying things that weren't true. For example, they said that he had attended the University of Iowa. And as a alumni of the University of Iowa, maybe should alumnus of the University of Iowa, I was outraged by this because Philip Class did not go to the University of Iowa. He went to Iowa State. That's right. <laughs> a wholly different, a wholly different university. Uh, but yeah. uh, that's kind of the East Coast attitude. You know, we all lumped together here in the Midwest. Yeah, well, it's Iowa somewhere, one of them Iowa places. Yeah, on Iowa State, University of Iowa, who the hell cares what the difference is? Yeah, yeah, right. 
I, I mean, but that's really kind of a minor mistake, and I can understand how that can be yeah. made uh, because of the way things are in the world. But uh, what are some of the other things that they were saying that kind of got your attention? Well, it, it was this preposterous thing that um, he he met this guy uh, from the, uh, the Russian embassy, um, which is true. And in fact, I knew this. I, I, I think I met that guy once. Uh, Glass was hanging around with him, and uh, I think they were each trying to, to gain a few little tidbits of information from the other. Because uh, you remember, Class worked for Aviation Week in Space Technology, so he spent his whole work week doing things, talking to important people in Washington, talking to congressmen and secretaries of defense and, you know, people in charge of important well, let me, uh, let me weapons interrupt. Let me interrupt. Let me interrupt, because I think it's important for the audience to understand that what they were alleging is that Klass was some sort of a Russian dupe. He was working for the Soviets. Yes, that's right. Well, in fact, they were more specific than that. Dolan and Martin were, were alleging a class that was having a gay relationship with this guy uh, and thus was being blackmailed into providing information to the Russians. That is their, uh, that is their preposterous allegation. Um, I knew class well. He was not gay. I mean, not there would be. I knew some other people who were gay at that time, but he was not one of them. And uh, in fact, he was rather a ladies' man. Um, he was going with. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. But this one a French woman, I think her name was Monique or something, and, and he, or Monica, uh, and um, for a period of like several years there, and I met her a couple of times, you know, and she would, class had essentially what was a, a bachelor apartment uh, in the Harbor Square Apartments there in uh, Southwest D.C. Uh, it, was a, it was a studio apartment, but it's one of these where you would go up the stair, like a, almost like a lighthouse stairway up to the second level, and you would then see I mean, it was open. You know, it was not a. It was not a, a full. It was just you know like a, like a, a bedroom raised up above the living room, and then you could still look out and see the Washington Monument and the, all the sights of Washington. So I mean, it was a very, very impressive setup he had there. And uh, in fact, when he'd go to UFO conferences, uh, if there was any uh, good-looking young lady at a, who appeared to be by herself at a, at a UFO conference, and class uh, would be talking to her very soon. So. So, but so Philip Class was um, friends with this this Soviet, and yes. the a, allegation a is that, yeah, the diplomatic person, yes. And the and the allegation that they they made without any real evidence was that right. uh, Class was being blackmailed by this guy, and I don't know what kind of information Class could have been feeding him that would have been yeah, well, all that relevant. Point. Because uh, any information that was leaked to class, he would publish in Aviation Leak magazine, and that's what they called it. I mean, by, as fondly it was known, you know, Aviation Week in space technology was widely known as Aviation Leak, because they were the first to uh, provide information about things like the, uh, the stealth bombers and so on. Well, let me break in. Let me break in once again. Workers. Let me break in because I got to take a break, and. Uh, <laughs> We'll continue with our discussion of Philip Class. We'll get into the Stan Friedman aspect of it as well, because I think it's important to contrast these two personalities, because basically they were the same personality. 
um, and the way yeah, they operate. Yeah, in the ways. <laughs> but we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back momentarily. I wanted to uh, thank those of you who purchased uh, Best of Project Blue Book. I really appreciate that. And I've noticed that a number of you have been uh, actually giving some kind of a, a rating to it on Amazon and that sort of thing. And those things always help because uh, people look at those ratings and if you can write a review, that also helps. Good, bad, or indifferent, uh, the reviews do help uh, help us spread the word in that. And I also wanted you to make sure you look at the book Encounter in the Desert, which is the Lonnie Zamora sighting. And Roswell in the 21st century, which I think will surprise some people with my attitude. I will be back right after this with Robert Schaefer, so please stick around. Robert Schaefer, which is to say we are in different rooms in different states, so we're practicing social distancing as required or suggested or mandated, however you want to put it, by various individuals. We're talking about Philip yeah, Class. Social and, distancing. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about uh, Philip Class, and uh, we're going to be talking about Stan Friedman. When we went away, we were kind of talking about the idea uh, class being something of a ladies' man, an aviation leak in Space Technology Magazine. And I have a bit of a story that I wanted to share. Back when I was in the Air Force, and Philip Class actually told me this, that they had been to the Paris Air Show, Class and the staff, uh, whoever, from the uh, magazine, because the Paris Air Show was a big deal showing the latest in military aircraft. And they'd taken a series of pictures of a new Soviet aircraft that was unveiled there. And they gave, right. they, they gave the pictures, they gave the original pictures to... Um, the Air Force, they kept copies for themselves, but they gave the original film to the Air Force and they inadvertently left out one of the pictures. And class told me that they had called and asked for a copy of the picture and the Air Force said, we can't give it to you, it's classified. So that gives you an idea of something about that. It was kind of silly. We gave you the pictures, we didn't copy one of them, now you won't give us, give us a copy back. But that kind of also explains what was going on with aviation. And, and we in the Air Force called it aviation leak and space technology as well. So we have this idea that, that Philip Class is leaking information to the Soviets with absolutely no evidence whatsoever. And um, yeah. didn't you say at one point that you'd actually looked at the FBI file on Philip Class and all that information was in yes, the FBI file? Uh... Yes, it's online. Uh, the leak, uh, the link, uh, leak, the link is available. I wrote uh, on my blog, Bad UFOs, uh, oh, a month or two back, about this uh, Richard Dolan thing. Just look for, you know, Dolan or class. Search for that on my blog, and you'll find the story that talks about this. You know, Do uh, Martin and Dolan that we're talking about here, and it has the link in there to the FBI files. And yes, it actually. It tells that that at one point the FBI was considering prosecuting class or publishing some sort of classified information that had been leaked to him and publishing it in aviation leak. But they decided that it, there would be, there would be they would lose more secrecy. They, the harm of revealing if they tried to go ahead with the prosecution, they'd have to reveal a lot more stuff than they were comfortable to do so, so they ignored it. So in that sense, I mean, he he could be considered a leaker, uh, possibly even illegal, but they declined to prosecute. Uh, and I think such things are not really that uncommon when uh, dealing with aviation leak. He would be talking to all the technical people, because Class was an engineer, electrical engineer, 
and uh, and he was 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 quite well versed, you know, in in knowing his uh, his profession of uh, of you know electronics, and especially the new electronics. He specialized in you know in that and what was going on uh, as far as you know the new electronic systems, avi- aviation electronics shortened to avionics and they say that class apparently made up the word avionics or you know was the first to use it in print so um yeah well, it was, uh, and he would be talking to the guys from all these different uh you know contractors and then get a lot of information and then he would leak some of it i guess or print some of it let's say i know one of the things that they had said dolan and martin had said was that uh, he had a very superficial knowledge of the ufo field didn't know a lot about it. And and I, in my dealings with him, it seemed to me that his, his knowledge of the UFO field was encyclopedic. I mean, he knew yeah, an awful absolutely, lot of stuff. You, absolutely. Could, you, and I, you and I can discuss UFOs, and I can mention a case, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, where those of um, the general public aren't as immersed in the subject as we are, and we might have right. to explain to him where it is. But, but you could say something like that to Philip Class, and he would be well aware of the case you're talking about and can provide you with information about the case, some of it not necessarily overly accurate, but he could provide you the information. <laughs> and when I say that, and it's something that's been repeated in many, many books, including Jerry Clark's massive encyclopedia, in the uh, Socorro case, he said that the land where the UFO supposedly landed had been owned by the mayor of Socorro, who would have been Zamora's boss. And everybody repeated that as being factual until, I think it was Paul Harden, who actually lives in Socorro, did some research on it, a title research on it, and discovered the land actually belonged to an estate and the mayor had nothing to do with it. But Class had made that uh, I wonder assumption. where he got that from. I mean, I heard him say that, but I don't know. I, I assumed that he had checked it out, and perhaps not. And, and maybe that's he got we, from a source that wasn't wasn't reliable that, and that's Probably the thing about UFO, that. that's the thing about ufo research we, we we assume people have checked things out and then <laughs> later on we learn that they haven't and, and <laughs> the best example i can think of is robert willingham who's this guy that claimed to be an air force colonel and everybody believed his story about the del real ufo crash because he was an air force colonel and nobody had vetted him and I found out he spent 13 months in the military, and he was uh, discharged as a low-ranking enlisted soldier. He hadn't been in the Air Force. His whole association with the Air Force was through the Civil Air Patrol. And his story just completely collapsed. But everybody thought somebody else had checked it out. And I think that that's the deal with uh, Philip's discussion of who owned the land and the idea you that know, they were I, don't, I don't know where we got that from. Uh, I do have some files uh, from class, but I'm not sure they would go how much of that carries, you know, back to Socorro. Because um, he would, this was, I mean, it occurred in '64, and I don't know when class was writing this. Was it, you know, immediately afterwards or years afterwards? I, I, I might be able to find out something about that just by digging in my files, but uh, I, you know, I don't recall him saying where he got that information. Probably somebody told him this, and he assumed that it was correct. It uh, and, and, and we can look at his book, and he, and he mentions it there. And, and the real point is uh, yeah. Jerry Clark picked it up, and Jerry is usually very, very careful in his research and something like that. And, and I really can't fault Jerry because I, I, I think I'd put in the same thing at some point as well, that the, the land had been owned by the mayor. And he envisioned some kind of a... Uh, um, 
landmark, some kind of a, a reason for people, a tourist attraction. Uh, yeah, that, tourist that, attraction. that eventually developed in Roswell. <laughs> yeah, I know. In a big way. Yes. A real big way. But the thing that struck me about the discussion as I was listening to it with uh, Martin and Dolan was everything that they were saying about Philip Class, the way he operated, the way he treated some people, the way he attacked some people, was exactly the same thing that uh, Stan Friedman had done repeatedly. And I was a target of, of yeah, much I, of I think they were, uh, they were twins who were separated at birth. Class and Friedman. <laughs> they were just on opposite sides of the fence. Uh, Jerry Clark, I think, said it one yes. time that they they shared a personality. They were the same same personality. I think that's uh, there's a lot of truth in that. So I guess what we're saying here is that if you're going to point a finger at Phil Class for this sort of thing, you have to point the finger also at Stan Friedman. Yeah, well, I think Friedman might be a little worse, but. <laughs> Because he was, people could argue about that. I was going to say because he was a true believer, or just because he happened to be nastier. Well, um, it's hard to. Yeah, I, well, I, oh, if we're talking just about nastiness, then I agree they were probably about the same. If we're talking about like inaccuracies, I think Friedman would win on that. But uh, yeah, as far as nastiness, no, I agree they they are cut from the same mold. So, and the funny thing was, they more or less could get along. If you ever saw them together or heard them talk on the phone together, they're not angry with each other or anything. And uh, it's just, well, all right, what time are we going to do this or whatever, you know? But uh, they more or less got along. I thought it was interesting that that um, in my relations with uh, Philip Class, and the last time I saw him was in I think St. Louis in 2000 at the MUFON convention there, and he was, um, I guess. Frail, fragile. Yeah. yeah. But he he asked me for help yeah. to get to his hotel room, and I was glad to go. But in all my yeah. all my yeah. contacts with him, he was always very cordial to me. And, oh uh, yeah. Uh, and class and class and Friedman really was um, not all that nice as a person, and attacked me. Well, but there's a big difference there. You see, you and Friedman were rivals concerning uh, writing about Roswell and the whole Roswell story. Um, whereas uh, class, uh, there's no competition or contest between you and class. Ah, good point. I had not thought of it that way. I do know that uh, Don Schmidt and I met Friedman, and I have the vision of us being talking about it in a parking lot. I'm sure we met in the restaurant as well, but in the parking lot. And and um, he had learned that we were going to do a book, Don and I were going to do a book about Roswell, and he said that he should be on the book, the cover, his name should go third, and he should get a quarter of the money. And I'm thinking, why? What contributions have you made to this other than throw up roadblocks to get in my way? And I said, no, that's not going to happen. Not to mention the fact it's a bad idea to have three names on the cover of a book. It's okay yes. to have two, but three names is getting a little sloppy. But that kind of set the tone, and Friedman always seemed to um, go out as a way to attack me. I remember once I overheard him at a, at a conference. He asked a bunch of people, was Randall ever an intelligence officer on active duty? And I'm thinking to myself, that's not the question he wanted to ask. The question he wanted to ask was if I'd ever been on extended active duty as an intelligence officer um, because he didn't understand the, uh, the, the, the nuances there. And the other thing that always cracked me up is the lectures he would give me on military protocol. Here's a guy who oh, had yeah. never served. 
I'm an officer in the military, and I get lectures of him on military protocol. Often his lectures were inaccurate and incorrect. He yeah. told me once that you can address a colonel as a lieutenant colonel as colonel. And I said, oh, really? We always we always called those telephone colonels in the military. A lieutenant colonel was a telephone colonel because you pick up the phone and answer and go, this is colonel so-and-so. You didn't have to say lieutenant colonel. You'd say, this is colonel so-and-so. It's a telephone colonel. But... Yeah. Um, that was that was the thing that struck me that that what we could talk about there was uh, class and Friedman having similar personalities and doing the same sorts of thing, attacking people people in the same way, um, going after their sources of income. I know that uh, Philip Class um, attacked James McDonald, Doctor McDonald, suggesting that he had been using Navy funds to investigate UFOs, which is really not a fair allegation. Well, but, no, actually, it's true. If you've seen the the Andruffel book, A Firestorm, about this, um, it's in there. It's quite direct. Uh, he was, McDonald was um, sent to Australia on um, business from, was it the Navy contract? Uh, and uh, But while he was there, he decided to investigate UFOs. Now, uh, I forget the exact breakdown of what came of that, but as I understand that they, they he was reprimanded, you know, for saying, you know, for uh, essentially for, uh, I'm not sure, you know, how much of the Navy funds actually went to, uh, you know, UFO investigation, probably not much, but uh, no, that what Class said was accurate, but in, in, in the big picture, it's, I, I think it's not all that significant. Well, that was what I was going to say, because I've been on any number of excursions by the military, paid for me to go to some place. And on my off-duty hours, I would go look at newspaper morgues uh, to look at their UFO stories and that sort of thing. So I really wasn't using government funds to investigate UFOs. I think it went a little further than that, but I don't know how much further. But uh, I, I think maybe they were alleging that the trip might not have even been necessary. I'm really not sure. We'd, I'd, I'd have to go dig that up and see exactly what uh, well, I, it says. But if you want to know the story, I mean, Anne Druffel, I've read that account, and, and the, you know, her fa- the account she gives of McDonald and that thing and that contract is factually correct as far as I'm aware. Well, I was going to say, he went, he went to Australia to investigate some kind of um, phenomenon, astronomical phenomenon, atmospheric phenomenon for the Navy. But while he was in Australia, he did some UFO research, and I never thought it was that big a deal. Uh, Let me take a break here, because unfortunately it's necessary once again. The uh, blog is www.badufos.com if you want to take a look at some of Robert's work and some of his analyses of UFO sightings. And I always like to mention that there's some other fine programs about the paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. So take a look at xzbn.net. And I think you're going to find something that uh, will spark your interest if it's not necessarily UFOs, but there's other things going on that um, might be of interest to you uh, there. My blog, of course, is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And I have a long article about uh, Class and Friedman and and how they were operating in the uh, UFO universe there. So you can take a look at that, which kind of um, supports what we're talking about here. You are listening to A Different Perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, and we'll be back right after this, so please stick around.
We are back with Robert Schaefer talking about UFOs and sort of tangentially and talking about Philip Glass and Stan Friedman and their investigations into UFOs and that sort of thing. We've been talking about um, uh, James McDonald and his activities with the Navy and his investigation yes. of UFOs. And like okay, I said, uh, I, just, I, I just grabbed uh, the, the Andruffle book, Firestorm, and I've, I've taken a lot of notes on it, so I went to the page where it, uh, st it talks about this. Um, she says, okay, uh, that McDonald broached the idea to Hughes, I guess who was his like uh, contract guy, that his initial Blue Book trip might be charged to his current ONR funding grant in addition to the search for data which Hughes had specifically requested. They came to the conclusion that studying Project Blue Book reports in general fell under the province of atmospheric physics. He was given the okay to charge his trip to ONR. So, and and this is you know straight from uh, from Andruffel's book. So uh, it, it it's a little more I guess questionable than that. That apparently he justified he wanted to go to investigate a case, and he justified it as being well that's atmospheric physics, and so therefore it's okay to charge it to the Navy contract. Yeah, that's a little bit worse but, than me going. Questionable, yeah. Yeah, me yeah, going. You want to know the whole, you know. The book, the book goes into detail about this. So, so, know, so, so, Dolan and Martin weren't completely off base in that discussion. We got to be fair to them about that. And well, uh, you know, uh, what about McDonald? No, they were. What, what are we talking about? Well, I'm just they saying. Given, McDonald. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I mean, some of the things they were saying about class. Uh, I was reading my notes that I'd taken from uh, listening to their their report. And about 35 minutes into that uh, discussion, they said, uh, Dolan says that class was an intelligence age asset, which is, a, I think, a, a, a smear launched against everybody in the UFO field yeah. at some point or another. And I've, uh, right. I've been accused of well, being... Well, they haven't launched it against me because I, I never had any background in the military, but uh, I suppose if I did, I'd be an intelligence officer, too. Well, I, I think what is interesting is I've been called a CIA agent. And while I was serving in Iraq, I actually worked with the CIA there. And I'm thinking, I have actual documentation. I worked with the CIA. But what it really boiled down to is their compound was co-located with ours. I had access to 700 soldiers, and there had been intelligence developed that there was going to be some kind of a terrorist attack on our area of the compound. So I was working with the CIA and the FBI in establishing the uh, perimeters and uh, the roving patrols that we would be, my the soldiers would be, yeah. uh, of course. Operating in the area it had nothing to do with anything else. It was just uh, that sort of thing. But I have actual oh, documentation. But I have actual documentation that I worked right? with the CIA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Philip actually himself uh, says frequently that he was an as asset. Well, an asset. What he he, um, well, he, he claimed well, he, he was yeah, on the. He did talk to the FBI sometimes and possibly the CIA. Um, well, I, but, what I'm saying is, what know, I'm, I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, he often said that yes, he were he was an intelligence asset for the CIA, and they were printing him ten million dollars a year or something like that. I mean, his tongue oh, was yeah, firmly yeah, that, in his yeah, cheek. He, he would, yeah, he would say those. Yeah, I, oh yeah, he would make up some ridiculously high salary and say they're paying me ten million dollars a year, a hundred million dollars a year, or whatever. And uh, some, a few people actually believe that. <laughs> well, uh, 
um, Dolan also said that in, in the same same area, he also said uh, he would be ashamed to have this man class to be associated with the skeptics. Now you're a you're a member in good standing of uh, with CI, CSI now used to be PSYCOP. Um what do you make well, of that I'm statement? I'm not with them any longer, but yes, oh. for many years I was. And uh, they, uh, yeah, Class, of course, was one of the founding members of uh, this. And uh, so, you know, and at the beginning there was, you know, a few people, and they specialized. And Class was a guy specialized in UFOs, and uh, Randy was a guy who specialized in psychics, and then a couple other people specialized in uh, astrology, claims of astrology, and so on. And so, um, yeah, but he was there from the beginning, and he he was highly uh, highly respected uh, by the other skeptics. He was on the um, board of Psychop, uh, on the whatever the governing board or whatever they call it, and um, for many years. So, uh, I, I think that's just an absurd thing to say. Well, let's flip this around um, and say to them um, about uh, Stan Friedman. I'd be ashamed to have been associated with him. And, 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 and the reason I say it that way is we can look at Stan Friedman's work, his body of work on MJ-12, the Gerald Anderson case, and we can see yeah. where he was fudging the information. And, and that's one of the things that said my blog, um, there was a long discussion about Adrian Buskirk. This was supposedly the leader of the archaeological expedition out on the plains of San Augustine in 1947, saw the crash saucer with Barney Barnett. And a fellow named Gerald Anderson said, yes, he was there with his family. Anderson was five or six years old at the time. And he told this marvelous story about this crash flying saucer. And uh, he said that he thought the leader of the archaeologists that Barney Barnett had said had shown up there that had been working at a cliff dwelling, and there's no cliff dwellings in that area, by the way, but had been working on some sort of archaeological dig. And there are archaeological sites in that area. Um, yeah. Was a guy named Adrian Buskirk. Tom Carey, who had, uh, it was all but his dissertation in physical anthropology, I think. I think a physical anthropology. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Decided to research that. And came up with a guy named Winfred Buskirk. He has a, almost a degree. He has all, Tom Carey has almost a PhD in physical anthropology, and he thought that that mummy in the museum was an alien. Um, well, I really didn't want to go there, but yeah, he did. And and <laughs> and, and, and to divert the conversation at this point, um, I was trying to figure out when they when I learned about this thing, they hadn't shown me the pictures or anything, but I was trying to figure out what this was, and I went back through the science fiction films of the time to see if there was anything in the science fiction films that looked like that. And of course there weren't because the science fiction films of the time didn't have really good special effects and the aliens all looked humans, like human and that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but but um, I said to Tom in December, before they had the big reveal, I think it was, could this have been a mummy? Yeah. I just, this was the only thing I could think of. It was a mummy because I've seen mummies that were very, very odd. And he said, no, it's not a mummy. They'd looked at 500 different mummies and it wasn't one of them. And I'm thinking, you're not looking at a specific mummy. You're looking at the characteristics, for God's sakes. Um, let's let's yeah. get alert. But yes, yes, he, he had, he was all but, all but he his dissertation. professionally qualified to recognize Native American remains, uh, you would think. But <laughs> he was the last guy to recognize it. 
Uh, no, I think he was next to the last guy, but <laughs> he was next one of the, to the last. last guy. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the point was, Tom Tom took on the search for Adrian Buskirk, and he said almost the second card he put his hand on in the card catalog, which shows you how long ago the research was done. Card catalogs, do they still have yep. those in libraries? Yeah, uh, yeah I remember those. Uh, he uh, said that he'd come up with a book called The Western Apache by a guy named um, Winford Buskirk. And so he... Um, wrote for uh, information about that and got information, got a copy of the dust jacket. So he had a picture of Buskirk. Anderson had created a, a, um, Identiket sketch of Buskirk. And when Tom looked at the Buskirk Identiket sketch and the photograph of Buskirk says, same guy, same guy, absolutely same guy. <laughs> Other people who saw the sketch said it's win for Buskirk. So now we've got, we've got a guy who is, Clearly an anthropologist. Buskirk got his PhD in anthropology. Clearly an anthropologist. Clearly could have been in the area. And, but but in talking to Buskirk, he says, no, it wasn't me. I was in Western Arizona with the with the Apaches doing my PhD dissertation. I didn't get into uh, New Mexico. And we're thinking, well, how could Anderson know about this rather obscure anthropologist? Um and we discovered that Buskirk had lived in New, in Albuquerque, as had Anderson. And we discovered that Anderson had gone to the Albuquerque High School, and Buskirk taught a course in anthropology at the Al, Al, uh, at the um, <laughs> high school. So we had put him in the same high school. We actually put him in the same room with Buskirk, and 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 Stan was just outraged by this and said, "No, we didn't know it," and and um, came up with all this information that proved that Anderson wasn't there. The point of this story is. Buskirk had sent me the name of three people who worked at the Albuquerque High School because he'd, he'd asked them about Anderson's um, studies at the high school, what courses he had taken, and discovered he'd taken the anthropology course. And the only person that taught anthropology at that high school was Buskirk. Ergo, he had to take the course from Buskirk. I uh, got a letter from Buskirk sometime later, and I, I, and I only just recently found it again and was astonished at my overlooking this. And they had said, Buskirk had said that um, that he had provided the, inform the information, had gotten to uh, Friedman, and Friedman had called the people and gotten the same information I had. But, uh, <laughs> but he Friedman, didn't want to admit it. <laughs> yeah, Friedman, Friedman was a bit, no, he didn't take the anthropology course, he took French. Uh, he's got a transcript <laughs> showing he took the French course. Friedman knew the truth, and he covered it up. Because Anderson was yeah. an important part to his story of the crash on the plains of San Augustine and tying Barney Barnett into this whole thing. That's the whole point of this long involved dissertation on my part, that, that Friedman actually knew the truth and he um, worked very hard to conceal that, calling me all sorts of names and, and diverting the conversations in all sorts of uh, different directions. Yes, when somebody does that, it really casts the whole pall over pretty much all the work and all the research that they've done. Because then you have to wonder how much of this other stuff is fake, and that's uh, that's not a good feeling. The, the one thing I noticed about Stan was that he would never admit that he was wrong. I pointed out to him that in his book he had misspelled San Augustine as in Plains of San Augustine wrong, and he said, "Well, it's misspelled on my maps." And I'm thinking, I have looked at an awful lot of maps of that area of New Mexico, and I have never found it misspelled on the maps. It's always spelled correctly. Um, and so he would not admit a mistake. 
But the, but the real point was, rather than endorsing Anderson, as he did and continued to do, even after uh, he was caught in the great, the great telephone boondoggle, Anderson caught in the great telephone boondoggle, which is an article in the International UFO Reporter that Don Schmidt and I had done called Missing Time, where Anderson had claimed his phone call to me was only 26 minutes and pre presented a bill proving it. My tape ran to 50 minutes, and I eventually got a copy of the phone bill, and it showed the phone call was 56 minutes. And um, even with that information, Stan just refused to admit that Anderson had taken him, taken him for a ride on this. Anderson claimed to be a Navy SEAL, and the Navy SEAL said, nah, he's, he was never a Navy SEAL. And I showed that information to Stan, and he just rejected it out of hand. He would, he would admit, for example, that uh, Willingham on the Dale Real case was probably faking his uh, background, but that did not affect the MJ-12 papers, which I'm going to have to explain, I'm sure, here in a moment so that people will understand where I'm going with that. But the, the point, you know, I, I um, knew Stan for 30 years and was um, surprised at the links he would go to assassinate somebody's character if they um, flew in, in the face of what he believed to be the truth. Yeah, well, I guess there's a lot of people like that and in politics and everywhere else. You know, they've got a story and they're sticking to it, whether it's true or not. And that's unfortunate, but uh, there is a lot of that going around. But when, you're, when you show them the evidence, though, I, that's, what, that's what always appalled me about some of this. And, and, and Stan, in this respect, wasn't any worse than any other true believer. When you show them the evidence and they just come up with the most cockamamie excuses for, for for why that evidence doesn't matter. Or they know the uh, truth. Welcome just to the land of you foolery. <laughs> A lot of foolishness going on. Well, as oh, I say, all of this is kind of laid out in on my blog, www.kevinreynolds.blogspot.com. Just type in class and Friedman, and it'll take you to the article. The article has been has been up for a couple of months, and it was now growth of this article or this radio broadcast that uh, Richard Dolan and Kathleen Martin had done. And uh, your blog is www.badufos.com. And yes, I, think I also that, have a book. A book by the name uh, Bad UFOs. You could find it on Amazon. Well, there you go. There you go. We're going to have to take a, a break here quickly. You are still listening to A Different Perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, which I like to mention periodically as well. We will be back right after this with more of our discussion. So please uh, stick around. I am here with Robert Schaefer. We're talking about um, Stan Friedman. We're talking about Philip Class. And I should point out, I had wanted to interview Stan Friedman when we were going to be in Roswell last year. My plan was to go to Roswell, have the microphone sitting there, talk to Stan, talk to Don Schmidt, talk to Kathleen Martin, talk to um, uh, other people about what they were doing what was going on in Roswell and that sort of thing. And I wanted to interview Stan as well and bring some of these issues up with him. Unfortunately, he passed away before uh, I had that opportunity. I wanted to mention that I didn't have plans to do that. One of the things that um, Martin said that I found a little bit outrageous was, Stan Friedman is a true scientist and class is a writer and a spy. 
I thought that was a tad bit outrageous uh, because oh, Philip Class was an electrical yeah. engineer. Yes, he was an electrical engineer. And, uh, you know, as far as Stan Friedman being a, um, a, a scientist, I, I wrote something on one of those blogs about, well, Friedman hasn't worked in uh, his uh, nuclear physics field for 50 years. And he replied, that's not true. He provided some information. So I went back and corrected what I had written. I said, Stanton Friedman hasn't worked as a nuclear physicist in 40 years. I'm sorry for the inaccurate information. Uh, but yes, Glass was, uh, was an electrical engineer, but he was a journalist. He was a writer. He was a journalist. And he, he later, I mean, he became a very important journalist at, in uh, technical, you know, journalism and uh, avi aviation, avionics, and so on. Very, very well-respected uh, writer there. As far as a spy, well, that's a lot of nonsense. But but that's, that's kind of an allegation slung at um, almost everybody in the field at some point, that they're a spy or they're worked. I was accused of working for Project Blue Book. While uh, Blue Book was being closed down in the late 1960s, I was actually serving in the United States Army, and I was in Vietnam. I had nothing to do with Blue Book, for those of you who are interested in that sort of thing. But I think, I think the, point, the point simply is, you know, we sling these allegations at people unfairly. And, and, and that was what kind of got me off on this thing, this, this tangent here of looking at the careers of, of Philip Class and Stan Friedman. And people have said to me, it wasn't fair for me to put up that piece on my blog because Stan isn't here to defend himself. And I'm thinking then it wasn't fair for Dolan and Martin to attack Philip Class because Philip Class isn't there to defend himself. Yes. yes. So what we needed, to, uh, what I wanted to do was, you know, kind of look at that sort of thing and uh, see. I, I can point to places where Philip Class made made mistakes in his investigations, and I think of the coin helicopter case. And I don't know if I Philip never came to me about that because what he needed was a helicopter pilot to talk about the what goes on in the cockpit of the helicopters. And he said in his in his book about that, he said, well, he talked to a guy who uh, had some time in a helicopter. He doesn't explain who he was, what kind of time he had, what kind of expertise, how he got his training. The difference is I had the same training as Coyne did in the helicopter. And Jesse, who was his co-pilot, had in the helicopter. We were all Army helicopter pilots. We went through the, the same flight schools. We got the same instruction. And so when Philip said the same kind. Yes, Huey helicopters. Did you buy the same kind of helicopters as he did? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I flew, hel I, have, I was qualified in all models of the Huey helicopter. I was qualified in the A, B, C, D, and H models of the helicopter. I flew the same kind of helicopters. I understood how those helicopters worked. So when, when uh, the object appeared uh, and seemed to uh, um, lift the helicopter, uh, Philip had analyzed that and suggested that that uh, what had happened is they were getting too close to the ground and Jesse had reached down and pulled up the collective without notifying Cone, the uh, aircraft commander. And that was how they began that ascent that, that Cone couldn't explain. And I would have told Philip Class that's not what have happened in the helicopter because we were all trained in the same way. If you saw a circumstance in which the aircraft would be in danger, then as the co-pilot, if you were not flying the aircraft, you were certainly authorized to take over the controls. But what you would say is, I've got it. 
And the other guy, not knowing what was going on, would release the controls to you to him and say, you've got it. So there was always a transfer of the power in the helicopters. You wouldn't both be on the controls at the same time, fighting each other on the controls. And so Phillips... <laughs> class's explanation of how that climb transpired with Jesse pulling up on the collective simply wouldn't have happened because we were all so ingrained in that. And you can say, well, it was an extreme circumstance. They were excited about what was going on. I've been in a combat environment. It's a much more exciting environment than a UFO in front of your, your helicopter. We followed those procedures even in a combat arena. And so Philip would uh, uh, make these uh, analyses that were um, inaccurate. I'm, I'm sure he truly believed well, he, this. And yeah. He truly talked to the helicopter pilot he, about it. He would talk. He would talk to somebody, and he, I guess he would assume that who he talked to was qualified to discuss this. And, and perhaps in some cases that's not true. But Kevin, so what is your analysis of of what the helicopter did? You do you think that the that the object somehow lifted the helicopter, or do you think something else happened? I have no idea what happened to them. I just know that the analysis that class presented in that circumstance, that they were getting close to the ground and Jesse pulled up on the collective, is untrue. I also look at the other aspects of it. Of the, uh, Philip left out of his analysis of the Cohen case is one of the co-pot, one of the, I'm sorry, the um, crew chief of the door gun, the, not the door gunner, the... <laughs> Flight engineer, in, in in Vietnam, you had a crew chief and a door gunner. They both flew in the door gunner positions, and they both had the job of door gunners. But they were looking out the other, uh, out opposite sides of the aircraft. And one of them saw the object on the left side of the aircraft. It flew down and then turned behind the aircraft and came up from the other side, which rules out the meteor explanation. And I think Philip didn't understand that... Um, there was no green tint on the windshield of the helicopter. There's what we call the greenhouses. There were these two squares above the pilot seats that were made out of green plexiglass. But the windshield itself didn't have any strip. The old automobiles used to have this green tint at the top of the, um, the windshields to shade your eyes from the yes. sun and that sort of thing. Helicopters didn't have that. So some of the terminology that class was using wasn't quite accurate. And I'm sure he talked to a helicopter pilot, but he really needed to talk to an army helicopter pilot because we would have had <laughs> the very same training. And so I could say, right. I could say to him, Philip, that's not right. That would not have happened. Well, how do you know? Because because that's how we were trained. Um, and, and we were so well trained. And I remember thinking about this. I had an engine failure at 2,000 feet. Engine quit. Nothing to you do. You're going down. <laughs> And uh, after the engine quit, I'm mentally going through the process of what we need to do in the event of an engine failure to have auto rotations. And as I thought about the process, I'd already done it. I'd already, I, I did it automatically. I did it automatically because we were so well trained in what we were doing. You did those things automatically and you went back to think about it. You realized that the, um, the training was that good. And I put the aircraft down with no trouble whatsoever because of that. The civilian world, they usually shot their auto rotations or practice auto rotations to a three-foot hover. And I'm thinking, yeah, and then you've got three feet to fall. We, we shot them to the ground. In the Army, we practiced auto rotations to the ground. So uh, we got different training than civilians would have gotten. So, and that was, yeah. that was one of the things I, I, I thought about with Philip's analysis of the coin helicopter case. I, to me, it's a puzzler. I don't know what he saw, but I, I'm pretty sure it's not a meteor. I'm pretty sure it's not a refueling aircraft, as some people have suggested. So wait, let me let me see. 
But I see if if I understand what you're saying about why it couldn't be a media. You're saying it was seen out the left side and then the right side. Yes. Is that what you were saying? Yes. And, and the, guys, the guys are facing the, the guys are or facing in front the, of it or a, the guys are facing different directions. Right. Because the way the aircraft was configured, the way the seats were configured in the cargo compartment is they were facing out the opposite doors. So to see the see something out of the right side of the aircraft, the guy on the left side would have had to look over his shoulder, and he's looking out the out the cargo door, toward the right. object as it as it came down one side. Later on, it appears on the other side of the aircraft, with the guy looking out the right side of the aircraft, and eventually is seen above, the uh, in front how, of the. How aircraft. much time? How much time elapsed between the right side and the left side? Well, they're flying a straight line, and it was it was a couple yeah. of minutes, I believe, and I'd have to go back and look at, oh, at the so. case myself. So I, I yeah, just I, I think Phillips, I, it's been a long time. I think Philip's analysis of the case was inaccurate in in that respect. Which, I mean, um, he got the best information he could, and, and and to be fair to Friedman, he often got the best information he could, and and related it. I know of no circumstance where Philip suppressed information that was counter what he wanted oh. to believe. I think Philip um, was maybe a little enthusiastic for some of his solutions that weren't warranted by the evidence. Um, and I think I think it, once no, in a he, while, go ahead, please. What, he loves to, um, to argue about things. If you thought the case was A and he thought it was B, he would love to argue about that and, and ask you questions and try to show that you were wrong. So he, he, that would be his approach. He would not try to silence it and say, well, we can't publish this guy's article or we can't let him speak here because of this. So he, would, he, would, you know, he, would, he, he was always up for a, a good fight. And I, I think that, that, that Stan often would attempt to intimidate people. I'm a nuclear physicist and you're not um, yeah. type thing. I'm a scientist. You're not. I, I was going to give a lecture in Cincinnati, Ohio. And on, on the day of the presentation, Stan actually called the host and asked him if uh, he said, why are you having Randall talk there? Wouldn't you like a, a scientist? And I said to the host, you, you should have said, yeah, do you know one? But... Uh, <laughs> But I do not know of Philip Class ever calling. Oh, I was, I was going to say that, but that's not really not fair. I was going to say calling the, the the host of a presentation. He did do that with a, a conference that was being held at Lincoln, Nebraska, about UFOs. Right, I seem to recall there was something like that, and he was just yeah. basically suggesting that a, a school shouldn't host a uh, UFO. Uh, which, uh, was it a, a talk or a, a conference? It was a symposium. It was a symposium yeah. with yeah. a number of different speakers. I would think that if a right. college, a university is hosting that kind of uh, uh, symposium, that they would want speakers on all sides of the coin, yeah. meaning that you would want skeptics there. You would want true believers. Yeah, but there. I think there were no skeptics. There. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that was his concern, was that there was no you know, fair representation and so on. And this school appeared to be giving academic respectability to some things that might not be quite so respectable. And in fairness, I would say that some of the presentations weren't the most critically evaluated before they were given. Um, yeah, well, that's always the case, I think, <laughs> But but you can see that on the other side of the coin in 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 the um, in the skeptics side of the coin too that sometimes the analysis from the skeptics aren't as 
um, critically oriented as they could be. And I often wonder why the skeptics aren't as skeptical for the solutions um, as they are for those who say that the um, sighting is unidentified or a flying saucer. I think that the skeptics should be equally, when somebody presents a solution, they should be skeptical of it and research it as well, is all I'm saying. Yeah, well, in the, yeah, and actually I've done that. There, there have been a few situations like Skeptical Inquirer published a few articles that uh, by, well, maybe I won't mention the name, but somebody who I thought was pretty off base in a whole lot of things, but nonetheless attempting a, a skeptical explanation. And uh, I no, I let them know that uh, this, this, this looked pretty bogus to me, and uh, they haven't been uh, running that sort of thing anymore. Uh, but um, I, I, in the case of Phil Glass, of course, to know I, you know, I would not be in a position to know that his helicopter analysis was wrong. Uh, you would be, and actually, I would encourage you to write. Did you have you written any chapter or a blog post or anything about the coin helicopter? You know, maybe it would be a good time to uh, reevaluate it in terms of what we know now. And I actually have what you know. I actually have done that. I have uh, I've published it in a, a book, and I forget which one I published it in, and I, I put information up on the blog about it. Robert, we're out of time for this session. I'd like to thank you for your contribution and a discussion of Phil Class and um, Stan Friedman and some of the issues in the UFO field. Your blog is... Your blog is www.badufos.com. The book is cleverly called Bad UFOs as well. You can find it at Amazon. My blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And uh, the books are Encountering the Desert about the Socorro Landing, uh, Roswell in the 21st Century, which is a somewhat skeptical look at the Roswell case, but not a completely debunking of it.